chapter 18 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. Just get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. And that way you can not only hear the word, but you can read along with your own eyes. Never, ever trust me or anyone that's in a pulpit to be telling you the truth. Uh, You've got to look at that and see that with your own eyes from a Bible. And so we'd love to get one into your hands for that purpose, though I do endeavor to tell the truth to you uh, from this pulpit. Sunday morning, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And now we're really dealing with the morning of his crucifixion and been through his life. And these are just pinnacle kind of uh, events, of course, related to his life. I think this is like number 170 in the series. And so it's been great. You think, how can it get better? And it just keeps getting better through all of this uh, and its significance for our lives. And then, of course, the resurrection and beyond. This morning, we're going to take a look specifically at a man uh, uh, by the name of Pilate. And so we'll pick things up in John chapter 18, verse 39. Pilate, speaking to the religious leaders of the Jews, declared, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And so Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. And Pilate then went out and said to them again, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he should die because he made himself the Son of God. And therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again to the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And then Pilate, therefore, when he heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat him in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, uh, Gabbatha. Now, it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and led him away. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your book. 
thank you for this Bible. Thank you for the living book that it is, the eternal book that it is, the cleansing book that it is, the holy book that it is, the truth-filled book that it is, the lesson-filled book that it is. And Lord, we pray that as we study this passage this morning, that your teacher, the Holy Spirit, would speak to us today and give us great clarity and understanding of all the reasons why this account concerning Pilate is in the Bible. And then further, Lord, to speak to us of the lessons that are found in this passage concerning his life. Lessons that are so valuable, you have made room to include them in the Holy Bible that will outlive the heavens and the earth. Speak to us, we pray. We've come to hear your voice, Lord. Help us to hear your voice through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Pontius Pilate is one of the most tragic figures, not only in all of the Bible, but one of the most tragic figures in all of human history. And that's saying a lot in the light of human history. And I think that it is very, very sobering to realize that his name and his identity are completely and forever associated with his trial of Jesus, with his treatment of Jesus. He will be known forever and he will be known supremely. As the Roman official who sentenced Jesus of Nazareth to death by means of crucifixion, even though he knew better. Everything else, by and large, is forgotten related to Pontius Pilate. His name, it, apart from the part that he took in the morning of Jesus' crucifixion and in condemning him to death, if he had not been a part of that morning, if his life had not been associated with Christ in some way, there would probably only be a handful of people in all of the world, and all of them would be students of obscure facts concerning Roman history, and only by virtue of that would any of anybody know the name of Pontius Pilate. Everything that we know about him, the reason that he has the place that he has in human history is because of his tragic decision to have Jesus crucified in spite of his innocence. But what's even more sobering to realize is that what is true of Pilate will ultimately be true of every one of us in this room and every one of us in this world. One day, everything else about our lives will be completely forgotten. And only our treatment of Christ, our trial of Christ, what we did with Christ will live on to become our eternal legacy. Because nothing else that we do in life is as important as what we decide to do with Christ. 
In this passage of Scripture, the Holy Spirit includes this account of Pilate's terrible, terrible failures in his dealing with Jesus. And it's included in the Scriptures in order for us to learn lessons related to the mistakes that he made. And the Bible includes not only the mistakes that Pilate made, but also includes the reasons behind those mistakes, those human frailties that are a part of our lives as well, that can lead us to ultimately end up on the wrong side of what we do with Christ. One of the things that I love about being a Christian and being in the light and being in the truth of God's word, I'm not in a search for truth anymore. I know where the truth is. I know what the truth truth is. But once that's settled, once you have a safe place for your heart, your mind, your soul and your strength to be anchored in a movable place, now you can become a great observer of life. And to observe life all around us on a daily basis is to be constantly being taught. Life is constantly teaching in this world. Much of the teaching that we receive in this world is the teaching that we receive from uh, uh, good role models, people who are uh, virtuous and, and their impact upon our life is beneficial. And so we spot that kind of person and we listen to them and we learn as we listen to them. And because we recognize something in their life that is valuable to us and something that we want to be a part of our life, we go beyond even listening to them. We proceed to then watch their life to glean every bit of knowledge that that we can from them in order to learn from them. And that's wonderful. But not everything in life is taught through stellar examples or wonderful human beings. A great deal is taught in life by observing failure, by observing the wrong decisions of other people, to watch where the, the paths that the decisions that men and women make put them on, and then to watch what kind of human being is produced as they remain on that path and what kind of an end to their life is a result of that. So there's a lot of people that we watch in life. You, by virtue of being in this room and thus over the age of 12, have been exposed to people where you have, in watching their life, their entire life has been a lesson in what not to do. And then in looking at the mistakes that they have made to realize with all of my strength, I want to avoid making those same mistakes. And Pilate is one of those men from whom we learn what not to do in our treatment of Christ. I think that it's important to understand a little something about Pontius Pilate on a historical level in order to uh, even begin to understand kind of the depth of circumstance that he was in on the morning in which he dealt with Jesus. Pontius Pilate was a Roman procurator, or we would call him a governor, and he was over the region of Judah and Jerusalem. He was handpicked for the position 
by the Roman emperor Tiberius at that time. And as the governor in Judea, he was Caesar's representative. So he had full control of the military, Roman military in that part of the world at that time. And and he had full control of uh, judicial administration there. And everything that Tiberius was in Rome, Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem. These leaders of even these provinces that were put in these positions by the Roman government, they recognized that I am not here all by myself trying to govern this province. They operated from the knowledge that the entire weight and power and resources of Rome stood behind them and their decision making. And so Pilate is a very powerful man and he knows he's a powerful man. He had distinguished himself in the Roman military, part of the 12th Roman legion in Syria. Because he had been made procreator here, he had to have risen to the rank of at least a staff officer within that Roman legion. And since this position was typically given to someone of an equestrian rank in those days, that is someone who was not only a part of the Roman military, had distinguished himself in the Roman military, but was also a part of the more highly esteemed cavalry units. Pilate was very experienced in military affairs and how to use military force. Financially, he would have been very well off by virtue of Uh, He would have had to have been well off even to have received the appointment that he received beyond what he would have been paid. Some suggest that his wife, Claudia uh, Procula, was the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. Now, that's called uh, marrying well. Whatever she might look like, that is to marry into astonishing power and position and access into uh, strata in the social uh, climate of of Rome that only something like that would avail you of whatever she might have looked at. And she was probably very beautiful. Pilate was a man who liked power. He liked position. He liked to rub shoulders with these kind of people. And this marriage gave him that kind of access as well as his position. Now, Judea, you should never think that Roman governors or Roman officers in the military woke up every day of their youth and said, oh, I hope that one day I will be made the governor of Judea. Nobody wanted really on some on some level they would have preferred to be a governor and just about anywhere else in the Roman Empire than in Israel, in Judea. History tells us that Alexander the Great conquered the entire world with thirty two thousand men. Rome conquered all of Gaul and all of Great Britain with twenty two thousand men. It took 80,000 Romans, 10,000 cavalry, 70,000 infantry, four years just to conquer Jerusalem. 
That's how fiercely independent the Jews were and still are. And so in order to rule there, it really required a strong hand, but also it required a wise hand in order to govern there effectively. Little bit of the carrot, little bit of the stick. The problem with Pontius Pilate is he was all stick and no carrot. He didn't understand how to deal with people effectively with power. And Pilate never became popular with the Jews in large part because he possessed absolutely zero uh, sensitivity toward their religion and, and their religious convictions and had no interest in developing any at all. And so by virtue of that, he created one crisis after another, after another, after another bloody, violent, murderous crises over the course of his 10 years of of ruling there in Judea. The first incident that occurred to rile up the Jews was almost immediately upon becoming the governor of the region on his very first visit to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was was not the capital of Israel in those days. Caesarea, a Roman city, uh, built a city built by Rome on the Mediterranean in the northern part of Israel. That was the Roman capital of Israel, not Jerusalem. But the governors had to go to Jerusalem on a regular basis because that's where that the main population of the Jews were. And it was necessary to have a presence there in order to maintain law and order. And so any governor had to make multiple visits, uh, continual visits to Jerusalem. And when he did, he would always come travel with a, a detachment of soldiers so he wouldn't be assassinated. The soldiers that he traveled with from Caesarea into Jerusalem with, they had their standards, and the standards were, you remember from maybe movies, these long poles that then would have some kind of a sculpture or insignia at the top. Sometimes it would be an eagle. Sometimes it would be another animal, um, depending on what legion it was or uh, uh, within the army, these kinds of things. They had many, many uh, of, of these uh, standards. And when Pilate made his first journey to Jerusalem, at the top of the standards that he had his soldiers carry was a little bust in metal of the reigning emperor Tiberius. Now, in those days, the Rome demanded that its subjects acknowledge that the emperor was a god. And thus to the Jew, that little bust on the end of that standard was a graven image. And all previous governors in, in Judea, when they would travel from Caesarea into Jerusalem, just so they wouldn't poke the Jews in the eye with a stick, would leave those standards home in Caesarea and, and, and then travel without them uh, to Jerusalem. They just would remove all of that uh, so they wouldn't provoke the Jews. Pilate simply refused to do it on principle. He just refused to yield to what he considered to be pure superstition on the part of the Jews. And so when he returned ultimately from Jerusalem to Caesarea, a large number of religious Jews 
followed him to Caesarea, and for five days they pleaded with him, humbly so, they pleaded with him never to do that again, never bring those standards into Jerusalem ever uh, again. Finally, after the five days, his pride is being smitten. This is an embarrassment to him and to his power. And so he told these, this large group of men to meet him in the amphitheater there in Caesarea. And he proceeded to surround them with a great Roman military force and inform them if they did not stop what they were doing, he would have them cut down and killed that very instant. To his surprise... The Jewish men opened up their robes, exposed their necks and invited the Roman soldiers to slit their throats on the spot, communicating that they would not compromise on this issue to the point of death. Even Pilate, as dumb as he was as a politician, even he did not want to be guilty of this level of cold-blooded murder at the very beginning of his reign there in Judea. He backed down. He was beaten in his first showdown with the religious Jews. He ordered that the standards be removed from Jerusalem and returned to Caesarea. And that was the beginning of his experience with the Jewish people. And you can be sure it left a very bad taste in his proud mouth. The second incident occurred sometime later. When Pilate, politician that he is, I'm not saying that all politicians are like this, but a lot of them are. So Pilate realizes at this time that Jerusalem uh, lacks an adequate water supply. And truly they did. So he wanted to develop a municipal project where he would build a 35 mile aqueduct to bring water from another part of Israel into the city of Jerusalem. And that would that would greatly enhance uh, the life there. And he figured not only would the Jewish people as a whole be excited about the development, but even the religious Jews would be delighted uh, uh, with this proposal because they were constantly slaughtering animals, which, according to the law of Moses, required that the animals be washed. Vast amounts of blood that needed to be washed away continually from that portion of the Temple Mount. And so water was scarce. Why not get more water? Well, he's got a problem. This is a great project that he wants to accomplish, but he doesn't have the money to do it. So what he did is he went into the treasuries of the temple in Jerusalem, which contained millions and millions of dollars. And he took that money in order to uh, build the project. Well, as you can imagine it, imagine the Jews resented it. And they rioted. Pilate then sent out a military force under cover, dressed just like the Jews. They interspersed themselves among the rioting crowd. And at a signal, they pulled out their weapons and they just began to, uh, to wail on people that were out in the streets with clubs and swords and and all kinds of things. And many Jews died in, in all of it. But it ultimately brought an end to the riot. Now, once again, uh, this didn't make him popular with the Jews. And so now he has to be feeling some heat, realizing with this second kind of 
uh, this great use of force that he has done here, that word is going to get back to the emperor in Rome that you've got a loose cannon out here that's just using physical force indiscriminately and you need to fire him and send somebody else. And he's got that kind of concern going on in his mind. The third incident, and this is the final one for those of you who don't have a, an appreciation for history that some of the rest of us do. He had shields made and displayed at his palace in the city of Jerusalem. And on these shields, he inscribed the name of Tiberius, the emperor at the time. The problem again with this was that at this time in Roman history, the Roman Caesars were uh, declared had declared themselves to be gods. And so in the Jewish mind, again, they revolted at a display in Jerusalem that was put up in honor of another God. And everyone, every Jew, every friend of Pilate, Every Jew that was sympathetic to Pilate, to a man, they came to Pilate and said, Pilate, you've got to back down from this. This is a very bad decision that you're uh, making here. And they called on him to remove the shields. He refused. The Jews then reported the matter to Caesar Tiberius way back in Rome. The very man that Pilate was trying to honor in Tiberius, Caesar sends back a message to, to Pilate and tells him, get rid of the stupid shields. What, what are you doing out there that reports are being, I'm running an empire, sir. You're a governor of a very small but significant region in the empire. Do you have to be provoking this kind of problem with the Jews? I don't need to be honored in this way. Remove the shields. And so Pilate then uh, removed the shields. And Pilate now has to be feeling that he's walking on eggshells related to his uh, governance of the Jews. He's used up all of his political capital and goodwill among the Jews and now he's lost some support even of the emperor by creating a problem in that part of the empire. And he had to feel that if he was involved in one more heavy handed incident involving the Jews, it would probably cost him his position. And so he especially does not want another riot with the Jews. And he certainly doesn't want a riot at the time of the feast of Passover, which is the timing of these events. The reason Tiberius called on Pilate to stand down is that Israel, though small, was a very significant part of the Roman Empire because it was a land bridge between Egypt and the rest of the Roman Empire. Egypt at that time was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. The grains, the wheat, everything that was grown there and the fertile plains related to the Nile, Egypt fed the entire Roman Empire. And here you got this guy going sideways on Tiberius over here. And if this thing turns into a mess in Israel, it's not just you and the Jews. You're going to cut off Rome from its food supply. So it's a really big deal. 
And Pilate's feeling the pressure at this time. And so now we know enough about Pilate to make some sense of his failures here and to allow the scriptures to search our own hearts in case we're uh, similarly affected or afflicted. Now, concerning his failures, we notice, first of all, his hesitation. His hesitation and his failure to do the right thing immediately. He knew that the Jews had delivered. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew that the Jews had delivered Jesus out of their own envy of him. And over and over again, Pilate comes out and and four times, in fact, it's recorded. He comes out and he publicly attests to the great fact of Jesus's innocence. I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. There's find no wrongdoing in this man over and over again. And yet he then failed to do the one right thing that he should have done in the light of that great fact. And that was to release Jesus at once to stand up before the religious leaders and to say, I will not do your dirty work. I know what you're trying to do to me here. You are trying to manipulate me, my name, my legacy into what you want to do with this man. I will have nothing to do with ordering the crucifixion of this innocent man. And if Pilate had stood up and just boldly and unflinchingly made that stand, he would have gone down in history as a hero rather than being spoken of in the same breath as Caiaphas and Annas, the Sanhedrin, and all of the other Jewish religious leaders who were also lead characters in the crucifixion of the Son of God. We think about how differently Pilate's day would have gone How differently history would remember him if he'd simply done the right thing in the face of the pressure he was facing. If he had just slammed the door on that praetorium to those religious Jewish leaders. I see what you're doing. It's wrong. I'll have no part in it. End of discussion. And he slams the door on them. The very worst that could happen would be that they would look at one another and say, well, it was worth a try. I mean, the odds of pulling him into this thing, I mean, you could only pull a sucker into this. And so he didn't go for it. We're going to have to find some other way and means to arrange for the death of Jesus of Nazareth. If he'd simply done the thing he knew to be right. His problems would have been over very quickly. It was his hesitation to do the right thing that caused things to get harder and harder as the hours went by that caused the trial to go on and on and on and on and ending in this decree to have Jesus crucified when it could have been put to a halt immediately. And by being wishy-washy, he gave the Jewish leaders hope that he could be convinced to do the wrong thing. And so their voices got louder and louder and louder. The Jews learned something from Pilate's three big incidents. 
There's a common denominator between all three of those incidents that Pilate had with the Jews, those failures there. The Jews learned that this is a man who comes on strong. I mean, he seems like he's inflexible, that he is a man of conviction. He will always do what is right, never do what is wrong. You can never move him from his convictions. That's how he appears for the moment. But you can wear that man down. Never believe the first decision that comes out of his mouth. If you can riot, if you can create a fuss, if you can create a problem, if you can get this guy to continue hour after hour, day after day in a situation, you can grind him down, you can wear him out, you can defeat this man. And they had learned well from their history related to him, and that's why when Pilate takes and comes out and I find no fault, I find no fault over and over again. They don't back off. They realize this is a man that can be persuaded. This is a man who can can be compromised on things. And so here they are in, in, in he just emboldened them by not just shutting the door on the issue. And all it did is cause them to put greater and greater pressure Upon him not to do the right thing. And the longer it took him to do the right thing, the harder they made it for him to do the right thing. And that's the way that it is in life. We think these Jewish religious leaders are sharp and they were sharp. They were manipulators par excellence. But they were nothing compared to the devil. Who will take and if we leave a door open to him and we don't slam it and we don't unflinchingly just put an end to that. This does not go forward. There's nothing you can do by the grace of God to pull me into your evil designs here. I am out of this. And if that kind of temptation or manipulation is not met in that way, it only emboldens the devil even more to oppose us. The best time to do the right thing is immediately. And if you're not a, yet a Christian, like Pilate, you've concluded that Jesus is without fault. You marvel at his life. You admire him. But you haven't put your faith in him for salvation yet. You need to do that today because the longer you wait to do what you know is right, you simply embolden the devil to resist you on the most important decision you'll make in life. And things will begin to get muddy and complicated and very, very messy when your thinking is clear now. Your decision-making is clear and proper now. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. We'll never think more clearly concerning Christ than the moment I realize that He is who He said He was and I need to put my faith in Him for the forgiveness of my sins. The second great mistake and flaw in 
Pilate's life and perhaps the greatest flaw that he had is in the realm of compromise. Pilate made in a, two attempts at compromise with the Jewish religious leaders. The first one in chapter 18, verses 39 and 40, where he reminds the Jewish religious leaders of the Roman custom of delivering to them some prisoner that they would request at the time of the Feast of Passover. And apparently the Romans did that in order to build goodwill with the Jewish people. And so he then asked them, who do you want me to release to you? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist. He was a thief. He was even a murderer. And Pilate, when he offers this choice to the Jewish religious leaders, as lowly as he might have thought concerning them, he never dreamed that they would choose Barabbas over Jesus. It doesn't even enter into his mind. And yet that's exactly what they do. They begin to cry for Jesus's crucifixion and they cry for the release of Barabbas. The second attempted compromise that he tries to make is when in chapter 19, verse one, he ordered the scourging or the whipping of Jesus with the thirty nine stripes. The scourging with the thirty nine stripes at the hands of a Roman professional was called in those days the halfway death. Because even if a person survived the scourging, by the time they got pulled off of whatever they had been stretched out on in order to maximize the effect of the scourging, no matter how strong they began the process, no matter how strong they, their will was, when they were pulled off of that instrument, at best, they were half dead and half alive. And many never survived the scourging. We'll talk about that on another Sunday. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus. So he wants to meet them halfway. He'll only half kill him. Would they agree to that? But they wouldn't even agree to that. That compromise. And Pilate was a man who tried to find a path in life that it would allow for him to please both Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And the problem is that no path like that exists. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. He said elsewhere, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my father who is in heaven. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, do not be unequally yoked with together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you that you may be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. A.W. Tozer, in this vein, wrote, A new decalogue, a new law, has been adopted by some of our day, the first words of which reads, Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes, too, which begins, Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable for anything. It is now the accepted thing to talk over religious differences in public with the understanding that no one will try to convert another or point out errors in his belief. Imagine Moses agreeing to take part in a panel discussion with Israel over the golden calf or Elijah engaging in a gentlemanly dialogue with the prophets of Baal or try to picture Jesus seeking a meeting of minds with the Pharisees to iron out differences The blessing of God is promised to the peacemaker, but the religious negotiator had better watch his step. Darkness and light can never be brought together by talk. Some things are not negotiable. We should never compromise our convictions and certainly our convictions concerning Christ. And what we ought to do with him for anyone else. Because anyone that would attempt to get us to compromise our convictions or to lead us away from doing the right thing concerning Christ is up to no good. They'll never be satisfied with our compromises. It will only embolden them to demand even more from us. And I think about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, where they brought these two men before the religious leaders of the Jews. Many of these same religious leaders brought before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful religious court in the land. And they've been out preaching Christ and calling people to put their faith in Christ. And that is still a threat to those religious leaders. And they call these Uh, apostles in Peter and John, and they demand that they not teach any more in the name of Jesus, that they cease what they're doing under the threat of physical harm. And Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They refused to compromise. Why did Pilate compromise? A couple of reasons. Number one, because he was a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. He was more concerned with what people thought of him than with what God thought of him. And he's not the last one to deny Christ 
under the weight of that. Another reason for his compromise. I mean, it's interesting to note that he compromised, but interesting to note the reasons why. He compromised because he was a man who loved his position as a Roman governor more than he loved God or even the truth about God. He's typical of the man or the woman who knows that if I come to follow Christ, it will mean the end of my upward mobility in this company. Or it may even mean the end of my job. If I'm working in an industry that is sin related and drawing people into the bondage of sin. There are many people who hesitate. They believe Christ to be the Christ. They believe Jesus to be the son of God. They believe all of the things about him. They, they believe and, and many people raised all of their childhood on the truth of this. They are what I was even for a time in my life. And anybody wanted to bring up Christ or the Bible and, and speak of it derogatorily or to uh, blaspheme Christ or say something inaccurate about him or disrespectful to him at the drop of a hat, I'd fight for Christ. I did everything but live for him. And it's the kind of person who looks and says, I believe all of that about him and more. But I know what I'll have to give up if I decide to follow him. And I'm not willing to give that up at this time. Pilate compromised because at this point in his life, he wanted peace at any price. He did not want another fight. And he's typical of the kind of person who will not give their life to Christ because they know that if and when they do it, it will bring great conflict to some relationship in their life. It will bring conflict into their marriage. It'll bring conflict into some friendship. It'll be the end of some boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. It'll be the end of the straining of relationship with children or with parents. Don't ever deny Christ over that. Some people hate conflict more than other people do. They will do. They just want to make everybody happy. But you cannot please God and everyone. And you certainly can't please God and certain kinds of people. And when you are forced into that position, you must choose to please Christ, whatever the consequences. The final reason that I see for his compromise is because he succumbed to the manipulations of the Jewish religious leaders. He's been deliberately pulled into this whole thing. The Jews knew it. We don't, the Jews figured we don't have the right of capital punishment. We want Jesus dead. We've got to involve some Roman official in this in order to get him uh, crucified. And so they needed to manipulate Pilate into doing that. I remember years ago 
is a new pastor seeing a videotape teaching of Gail Irwin teaching on the subject of dealing with manipulators. And it was very, very helpful for me to watch that study. And, and it served me well through the years. Not that I deal with manipulators on a regular basis, but I deal with enough of them that it, it, is, it helped inoculate me against the methodology. I think all of us understand when we are in a situation where we get this sinking feeling in this conversation that this person is not trying to do something for me. They are trying to do something to me. And it just becomes patently obvious, especially when we're in the body of Christ and we are continually around people who are genuinely, constantly wanting to do something good for us and not something to us. And I remember, I mean, remember uh, Gail teaching and he spoke of manipulation as a sickness in another person's life and, and, and declared, in essence, I'm paraphrasing him, so don't get mad at him. But, but in essence, that, that a manipulator is basically a sick person and, and they need to be stood up to. You cannot reinforce that kind of bad behavior, sick behavior in their life. Gail defined manipulation as essentially an attempt by someone to remove my freedom to choose in a situation. An attempt by someone to remove my freedom to choose in a situation. And Gail said, I've learned to respond to those kind of situations in a certain way. And with this response, he said, I say to them, I sense my freedom to choose is being violated. And so I must say no to you. And he determined to always say no to any attempt at manipulation in his life. And I'll tell you, it can spare you all kinds of drama and all kinds of difficulty and escalation of problems as Pilate found himself in the middle of. Gail did go on and say, well, let's just play the video right now here. He did go on to say that when you make that statement to them, say, I feel that my freedom to choose is being violated and thus I must tell you no. You're putting the pressure back on them. He said, if they then demand of you an explanation for why you say no, now it's confirmation you're dealing with a manipulator. They out themselves. And he says, then things can get very dramatic on the basis of you declining them, and they can kind of go off and everything. And he said, the thing to do is just to step back and enjoy the drama. <laughs> don't be bothered by it, but don't let any of that move you. And I have found that that counsel has helped me mightily through the years. And some people are more vulnerable to manipulators than others. And we, but we have to resist them. We have to be free to make our choices. And nowhere is that more important than as it relates to Christ. And most manipulation of people to keep them from putting their trust in Christ comes from religious people and from religious institutions. Amazingly and foolishly, Pilate was a man who allowed others 
to talk him into rejecting Christ to he allowed them to decide for him what to do with Jesus. And Mark's gospel and the parallel account of this, Mark records that he went out before the crowds, the Jewish leaders, and said, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Never, ever allow anyone to make that decision for you. That's a decision you alone must make. Because you alone will bear the consequences for eternity of the decision that you do make concerning Christ. Never, ever let anyone make that decision for you. And he ends up ordering the crucifixion of Christ because he wanted to please all of the wrong people rather than doing the wrong thing. Again, Marx records it. And so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, re- released Barabbas to them. And they delivered Jesus whom he had scour- after he had scourged him to be crucified. Who cares what anyone else thinks of Christ? All that matters is what does God think of Christ? What does the Bible think of Christ? And now under the weight of those two great, holy, pure influences, I will come to my conclusion concerning Christ. Though we have to stand alone in Modesto or in our neighborhood or in the whole world, it doesn't matter how anybody else esteems Christ. We are to make our own decision concerning him. Now, let me close with this. And I think it's very important to know the rest of the story historically concerning Pilate. And here's the rest of the story. In 35 A.D., just a couple of years after he ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. A priest among a group of people in Israel known as the Samaritans. Decided to lead a group of these Samaritans on a religious pilgrimage. For some reason, Pilate was threatened by the action, considered it a precursor to a revolt. And he sent a very strong military force, both infantry and cavalry, to intercept this religious pilgrimage, and they proceeded to slaughter almost all of them. The Samaritans then complained to Vitilius, who was the governor, Roman governor of Syria, Pilate's immediate supervisor, who then ordered Pilate to return to Rome to give an account for his actions before Tiberius. He was ultimately removed, relieved of his position in Judea and Jerusalem. And from that moment, he disappears from history. In other words, just two years later, two years after he orders the crucifixion of Christ, he lost all of the power and the position and the fame and the reputation and the high esteem of bad people that he had tried to hold on to by compromising his convictions concerning Jesus. And what is true of Pilate? will one day be true of every single person who rejects Christ 
for the same reasons. Pilate is not only one of the most tragic characters in all of the Bible, but as I said, also in all of human history, important that we learn lessons from his life so that we don't repeat his mistakes. He tried to please God and man when God and man were to cross with one another. And he ended up pleasing neither of them. And just as Pilate's identity is forever associated with what he did with Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion, so too every one of us will be forever identified with the decision that we make concerning Christ. Do the right thing. And do the right thing now. Now is the right time to do the right thing. And what is the right thing? To make Jesus your Savior and your Lord this morning. Again, there are a multitude of people. Some people in the room today, it's the first time they've ever been in a church. Other people in the room today haven't given their life to the Lord yet. But they were raised on all of this. They know the Bible stories and the Bible accounts better than some of us who've walked with the Lord for a very long time. They agree with all of it. They believe all of it. But because of some area of compromise in their life, whether related to a relationship, Related to getting ahead in the world, some position, some power, some amount of wealth, some hobby, some addiction to sin or addiction to self. They never close the deal with the Lord for all of their knowledge. Like Pilate. And Pilate's life teaches us that we will ultimately lose everything that we compromise Christ for. And that today is the day to turn to Him and make Him our Savior and our Lord. Now is the right time to do the right thing concerning Christ. And praise the Lord that we have the privilege of doing that. Not putting anyone in a headlock and poking them in the eye and forcing them into the I don't do that stuff. It's a privilege to know God. It's a privilege to be forgiven and saved. It's a privilege to live life with the confidence that all of this ends in heaven for me. It's a privilege to trust in Him. And if you've never done that in your life, there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'll have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. Take advantage of the opportunity that you have today. Let's stand together and we'll pray now.